welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org, and I'm joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello, Volodymyr. So, traditionally, we are going to talk about what happened in the in the previous months. We are talking about what happened in Ukraine in March 2021. So, Maxim, what are the key events and trends during these months in Ukraine? So, of course, traditionally, we'll start from assessing the situation with the COVID-19, with the dynamics, with the vaccination, and so on and so forth. We will then uh, take use of the uh, Crimean annexation anniversary to talk about where this issue is ranking these days on the international agenda, uh, what new initiatives there are. Apart from that, uh, touching upon domestic uh, policy, we'll speak about uh, further sanctions introduced by Ukraine's authorities. We'll then switch to Ukrainian and American relations and we'll uh, also talk a couple of words uh, about the Iranian recent uh, report on downing of the Ukrainian aircraft as well as about the protests near the office of the president. So lots of topics actually and uh, we'll try to cover them in some 30 minutes and let's let's try to be brief. The first issue is of course coronavirus. So uh, I would say that the situation in Ukraine is quite worrying. So uh, I remember that in uh, last year in uh, spring or summer, we were talking about the way how Ukrainians are adapting to this problem, to this global problem. Now we can say that Ukraine case is one of the worst in Europe and we have an increasing number of of cases and deaths. We have about uh, 300, 400 deaths per per day and uh, today we we have 18,000 new cases. The vaccination has started, but it's going not that fast, probably, as in other countries. And unfortunately, Ukraine is one of the top uh, hit uh, countries in Europe right now. So uh, what what do you think? How do you see the situation around the pandemics? Well, I think an important factor in this respect is that uh, the other variants, as they say, of coronavirus have been recently found in Ukraine, namely the British uh, variant, among others, uh, which is reported to be more deadly and which is why there are more casualties in Ukraine and more daily cases in Ukraine. So I think that's, that's an important factor. The problem, the problem is, is that uh, well, there is a certain shortage of uh, places in the hospitals, as far as we can see, especially in some regions, uh, for example, in the western Ukraine, in Ivano-Frankivsk Oblast, in Chernivtsi Oblast, and it seems that in in some cases the the hospitals are really getting to the to the peak of their capacity, and this is of course worrying, given the fact that the number of cases is growing and the number of people who should be uh, taken to the hospitals is growing too. And uh, I think there was a recent report by Kiev School of Economics who is, which is saying that about the number of people who need to be hospitalized is about 20-30% higher than the number of people who uh, recover and go away from hospitals, right? So this is a really worrying trend. Yes, indeed. And uh, that is one of the underlying reasons why Ukraine is uh, almost 
entirely in the red zone nowadays because it's not only about the uh, amount of cases but also about the ratio between the amount of cases and the capabilities of the medical system of Ukraine. So yes, that's true. And uh, we still don't have a national lockdown. We still have regional lockdowns. Uh, so, for example, in Kiev, in in some uh, in um, some other regions, but quite probably we'll have a pan-national lockdown in April. So it is also important to be prepared to this. And we should understand that many figures about cases, for example, they can be underestimated. So we are talking about 18,000 cases, uh, 18, cases per day, 16,000. But uh, the number of tests is still in Ukraine is not high. So it's not like you're testing everybody. Uh, therefore, the, the ratio of positive tests is quite high. That means that those people who have already symptoms or who have some suspicions, only them are going testing. So we don't know about lots of other cases where, for example, people are not testing, uh, not being tested because they're relatives of, of the people who have been tested and Uh, who have coronavirus and therefore they assume that they have coronavirus as well. And uh, there are lots of people, I assume, that have the, the disease without symptoms. So if we take this into, into account, the situation can be even more gloomy. Yes, indeed. And that's why, like you said, Ukraine would need a, a national lockdown, especially given that spring is, well, I would say around the corner. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to have all these holidays uh, at the beginning of May. And also we're going to have uh, some religious holidays, like, for instance, Easter being the biggest one of them. So we need to look ahead to those things and get prepared. How Ukraine is managing the inflow of citizens from other countries. Are there any limits? on this? There have been some news about this in the recent days, uh, because a couple of days ago, Ukrainian authorities introduced new rules for foreigners to present a negative test when entering Ukraine. And travelers that are Ukrainians and are entering Ukraine from abroad, they need to self-quarantine unless they also have a negative test. But the negative test is not a, a, you know, a demand in the first place. So yes, the, these are uh, the new restrictions. Uh, at the same time, I personally was quite impressed when I learned about this, that negative tests had not been a demand previously because that's what most countries do these days. So yes, that is long overdue and I think that's a good thing. So uh, like half a year ago, we were fighting for these tests. You know, there was there was a certain deficit in tests. Now we can be talking about the global deficit in vaccine. And Ukraine also here is not doing very well because it has access to some uh, vaccines which raise questions to Chinese vaccines vaccines to Indian vaccines, but we don't see, we don't hear any news about Pfizer, for example, whether it's it's really being uh, massively uh, used as a vaccine. And uh, we don't have, uh, well, we, we, we see quite a big mistrust of citizens to the vaccination. That's a big problem. And by the way, I've seen another figure that 71%, I think, of people consider that coronavirus is an artificial thing. So it's it also, of course, if you consider that coronavirus is not natural, 
that means you will be very cautious about testing and that's also a, a, a big problem 71 percent huh? it's hard to, to sing in okay let's um, let's move forward and, and talk about certain political issues we we will make a bridge towards previous uh, issues of our podcast of our explaining Ukraine podcast we were talking about the sanctions that uh, have been imposed by the Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council against such people as Medvedchuk against the companies linked to, to him uh, the companies which are suspected uh, by the uh, Ukraine security service to uh, to produce gasoline diesel gasoline and to uh, to basically sell this gasoline uh, into Russia including to Russian militaries so therefore this so much buzz about it but the interesting thing is that national security and defense council did not stop on this so we kind of a look at the way how at the sittings of the RNVO, the national security and defense council as a kind of a show like every week or every two weeks there is a new decision targeting some new companies etc and the secretary of national security and defense council mr danilov is kind of a, one of the biggest hawks right now in ukraine he's very present in media he's um, giving lots of interviews and uh, his rhetoric is that basically we are not only uh, trying to target the pro-Russian, the, the, the Russian connection, the Kremlin connection, Medvedchuk, his wife, uh, Kozak, the TV channels linked to Medvedchuk, etc. But we are trying also to target the, the oligarchic system, so target all those vested interests, etc. We will see how to which it will lead, but it's interesting that the instrument taken is sanctions. So it's not. So we are still. Um, we are still waiting for the activity of the law enforcement services, of the prosecutor general, of the of the courts, etc. So it's quite a paradoxical situation that while prosecution, judiciary system are incapable of, you know, defending Ukrainian national interests. There is a political tool, political uh, decision solutions which are taking ground. So what do you think about it, Maxim? Well, of course, I think that uh, Zelensky and his team, they uh, have indeed found a, a leverage, a good leverage. A, I would not say an unprecedented leverage, but a fresh one uh, for solution for the solution of these uh, kind of situations. Of course, uh, it is very, since it is, like I said, a very fresh instrument, uh, it is very important to for the society to to see how the checks and balances work here uh, because of the unfamiliarity of the Ukrainian society with this and inexperience with this uh, instrument. But all in all, it seems uh, that uh, the mechanism uh, is proving effective. We'll see what the final repercussions for those sanctions will be, but... Uh, in the absence of a possibility to be sure in the Ukrainian justice and that still being unreformed, uh, this may be a good provisional uh, provisional solution. Yeah, we, we don't actually know what will be specific consequences of these sanctions. For example, okay, the TV channels linked to Medvedchuk have been closed. There is another one which is popped up, which is called the first independent. And uh, if you're interested in the policy of this uh, TV channel, you can check our website, ukraineworld.org. We've published recently a very interesting article by our colleague Vitaly Rybak on this uh, a new channel, which is uh, 
might have been linked, might be linked also to the to the Kremlin. At least the rhetoric is the same. But Mr. Medvedchuk is, is a Ukrainian MP and he's going to the parliament and he's kind of Ukrainian legislator, you know, so no, nothing happens still for him personally, okay? Maybe some assets have been frozen, maybe he, he has less freedom of, you know, operating with, with money, we don't actually know, but there is no kind of a legal consequences that he's facing and it is also important. Let's turn to um, maybe political repercussions because my interpretation of what's going on in this situation with the sanctions is that Mr. Zelensky is in, and, and his entourage is, is increasingly going into the, you know, this patriotic discourse and patriotic uh, to, to trying to seduce these patriotic voters because his attack on the on the Medvedchuk pro-Russian forces can of course have a, a backlash the rising popularity of these forces we, we, we cannot predict what will happen right because these uh, like opposition and others they're, they're also talking about some real problems that concern people like economic problems primarily so I would not exclude that the political consequences of this is that Zelensky is trying to regain trust of those voters who are more patriotic, anti-Russian, Russia skeptic, etc. Maybe he's trying to get some of the voters of Petro Poroshenko and maybe he's trying to, politically, he's trying to modula, uh, model a situation when he will be in the second round, imaginary second round of the presidential elections with Mr. Boyko, representative of the Medvedchuk party opposition platform for life. And actually for... Zelensky is the easiest thing to win the election, but we will see. Another important topic is, of course, the anniversary of the Crimean occupation, Crimean illegal annexation. What can we say about this, Maxim? Well, there are several things to talk about uh, here. First of all, let's take stock of what's going on in the peninsula these days and have been going on for quite a long time. First of all, the surface topic is the human rights situation because uh, Russia has been oppressing uh, namely Crimean Tatars. All Ukrainians that have remained in the peninsula, but namely Crimean Tatars uh, that uh, still are living in, uh, in the occupied peninsula. And they have long ago found good from their perspective, uh, pretext to lock them in, to incarcerate them, because uh, they actually took took the use of uh, their being their religious affiliation, their being, you know, Muslims, and uh, imposing the alleged affiliation with Hezbut Tahrir or maybe other organizations that are considered extremist in, in Russia. So th that has been a, an instrument that has been used in Russia for, and in Crimea, for a good couple of years, and maybe even since the very beginning of the annexation. And also that uh, resulted in about 100 pending cases in the peninsula right now against against the Crimean Tatars. So uh, that is something the international community should not uh, forget about because that is something that needs to be the focus of the attention of the Council of Europe, of uh, the United Nations, and actually there have been even the resolutions of the General Assembly not so long ago about this uh, case. Apart from that, there is also the issue of water resources because they are being actively depleted in, in, in the Crimea, and this has been happening for, I 
think about a year now quite actively. Uh, that is a problem not only per se, not only because that that is a looming humanitarian catastrophe ahead, but also because of the security concerns. Ukraine had been previously given water to, to the peninsula from uh, from its rivers, from the Dnieper River. Uh, but uh, uh, now that this channel is blocked, uh, Russia may have an incentive to uh, forcefully gain a way to water resources from Ukraine. And of course, previously, Ukrainian politicians, uh, and rightly so, have been speaking about uh, the possibility of Russia trying to annex another part of the Ukraine's south in order to create this corridor and in order to have access to the Dnieper water. So, uh, and this, by the way, uh, may be even more possible in the near future. And here I am referring to the next subtopic I would like to speak about, the Crimean platform. This is something, this is a, a separate issue we can talk about. Uh, however, the idea is that Ukraine is trying to create an, inter an international platform to gather uh, international resources to deoccupy Crimea. And Russia has already said that it will consider the countries that will join the platform as encroaching the Russian territory. So if they present it as a need to defend the peninsula as they consider it being a part of their territory, so maybe they will try to kill uh, several birds with one stone to gain access to water and also to react to the alleged encroachment on their territory. That's a typical rhetoric of an aggressor to say that basically it is not an aggressor, but he's not aggressing any country, but he's defending. And we know this story long, long ago from other cases of aggression, even if we think about the start of the Second World War uh, and German aggression against Poland at that time. Uh, but uh, let us think, let us also talk a little bit about the Crimean situation. Uh, it is important to frame the water issue, right? Because uh, it is not that Ukraine is not supplying water to uh, citizens in Crimea. The problem is the militarization of the peninsula and huge resources, water resources, are consumed by, basically by these military uh, military objects, military assets. Uh, it is not a secret that, that Russia has been militarizing Crimea a lot, making it a kind of a military base to exert its influence not only in the Black Sea, but also to the Mediterranean, to the Middle East. So, um, and of course, Ukraine cannot supply water to a country that is basically creating a military base from which it, it can also attack Ukraine. Crimean platform is indeed a very interesting initiative. And for those who are interested in this, let me also refer to our recent discussion, very interesting discussion in which we also involved Ukrainian government officials. The discussion is called Seven Years Since Russian Occupation of Crimea. You can check it on our website ukraineworld.org, where the speakers also explain the situation of Crimean Tatars, as you mentioned, and the situation, the this idea of creating a Crimean platform. And the, the summit of this platform is planned for August, but the preparatory things are going on right now. But you mentioned this, you know, the the risk of a new Russian aggression. So let's turn to the Donbass issue. In fact, over the, the, the recent months, we are talking about a very also worrying situation when a ceasefire, I remind our listeners that there is there have been a ceasefire since July 2020. There is no longer a, a, a ceasefire. So there are casualties. And uh, uh, during the last months, a couple of months, I think the number of Ukrainian uh, soldiers that is, is about several dozens. So what's happening in Donbass right now? Well, 
indeed, the truce or the ceasefire, as you would call it, is not um, uh, is not working. Though I don't think it has been uh, formally denounced on the Ukrainian side, at least there have been some uh, statements by the occupation authorities. Uh, however, yes, de facto, it uh, does not work, and well, this makes Ukraine face a challenge because there is another hot wave in the of the warfare in the east of Ukraine and Ukraine needs uh, new solutions. One of these may have been the uh, the so-called uh, Yermak plan that is now being deliberated uh, in the cool war, as they would say, uh, of the Normandy 4 format. As far as I understand, uh, this has not been uh, made very much public so far. Talks are still going on and reportedly these are, uh, this is the initiative uh, that gathered the contributions from the uh, from France, from Germany, and from Ukraine as to how to implement uh, the Minsk agreements. Per se, uh, this plan is not something brand new in the implementation of the Minsk agreements, but it is rather uh, an attempt to take a new, a fresh look at uh, at how these Minsk agreements need to be implemented, the order in which uh, its provisions need to be uh, implemented. So there are both good and bad news for Ukraine in this uh, respect. So basically, according to the plan, the um, the security issues are going to come first, then other things that are provided for by the Minsk agreements. Uh, however, at the same time, there is the issue of the border because allegedly and reportedly, uh, according to this new plan, there are some changes uh, as per this issue. The border is going to get controlled by the OSCE, whose capabilities are not that strong anyway, by the OSCE during uh, different other developments, for instance, the, the main uh, among them being the elections in the Donbass, and only after the elections are over, the control over the, uh, over the border between Ukraine and Russia will be handed over by the OSCE to Ukraine. So that's liability, a big liability, because this may be a good thing when written down, however, well, we know the treacherous way of Russia doing these things. So, yes, that is that is a risk to think about. Let's not forget that the border issue is one of the most important um, controversy. And, of course, uh, well, the, the way how the, the so-called Minsk II in February 2015 was written, remember that, well, it was in a... In a typical Russian strategy of coercion to peace, that was the escalation on Donbass and then coercing, pushing the enemy, the Ukraine, to basically to sign an agreement which is not beneficial at all, which introduces constitutional changes to Ukraine, which basically introduces, interferes, it's a kind of a legal occupation, I would say, interferes into the way how, how Ukrainian state is functioning inside it. But that's a typical Kremlin trick. It, it it tried to do that in Transnistria and in in, uh, in in other regions as well. So, as far as I understand, this kind of a new details which were published by Ukrainian press and by Russian press is that uh, they're trying the, the French and Germans are trying to come back to this initial Minsk agreements of September 2014, in which there was a statement that basically OEC should. Uh, control uh, or supervise the border and supervise the security areas around the border. Frankly speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the capacity of current mandate, OSCE or any other ma mandate to to ensure these tasks. 
But uh, the problem is that Russians are not flexible at all. So they, they want these Minsk agreements to basically fix their influence over Ukraine over or through Donbass. Therefore, they need uh, Donbass, the occupied right now, Donbass to be a kind of a kind of a territory that uh, that is uh, that is influencing Ukrainian internal politics and they want constitutional changes so so they are instrument instrumentalizing this uh, a lot and uh, the problem is that if you consider the, the voices of the people and uh, there are several projects several sociologists who are asking the focus groups even in the occupied territories the biggest thing that people in the occupied territories want is the end of the war and they agree to any possible solutions be it and they don't really think about this special status it's it's not something that is interesting to them they want to come back to the status quo which was pre-war previously right so they they would they 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 would accept a ukrainian state in this you know pre-2013 or some of them want to go to russia and be joined by russia but they're not thinking in, in these terms of those political tricks that uh, russians want to Impose. Uh, we also had a discussion about this, and uh, you can check it on our website, ukraineworld.org, or now Facebook. The discussion is called "Is the Kremlin Preparing a New War Against Ukraine?" Several days ago, it was published. So, if you're interested in details, you can check it. Uh, so, let's move forward and talk about uh, some foreign policy issues. Two countries I would like to talk about. Uh, I would like you, Maxim, to talk about is the United States and Iran. Uh, the problem is that, as with the United States, the Biden administration is, of course, much more critical to Russia. And uh, recently, Biden has called Putin a killer. And it seems that these uh, sanctions we talked about, sanctions about uh, sanctions against uh, the uh, the pro-Russian politicians, it seems that they are they can be like a little bit more maybe linked uh, in parallel to the fact that Biden has become a president of the United States. But uh, we don't have a so close synergy between Biden and Zelensky. There is no personal touch between them. There is no phone calls. And that uh, can be worrying. What do you think? Well, indeed, that is uh, that is not only worrying, but also um, seems to be quite odd, given the the time that had passed since the inauguration and how many leaders he has talked to. I mean, the newly elected president. Uh, yes, that is odd. Um, Especially that, as you mentioned, the positions, the anti-Russian positions, uh, are similar between Ukraine and the U.S. as well as uh, the efforts that Ukrainian authorities uh, and President Zelensky himself have been uh, making in uh, fighting corruption. There may have no, uh, not been any, you know, victories, big victories. However, there are moves. The, you know, the sanctions we talked about and so on and so forth. However. I would point out that uh, on the flip side, there have been, there has been, I think, during the last couple of days, uh, a conversation between Anthony Blinken, the State Secretary of the of the U.S., and uh, Josep Borrell, who is responsible for foreign policy in the uh, European Union. And in this conversation, they touched upon Ukraine. And of course, this was not a conversation with Ukraine, but the messages that were exchanged between the EU and U.S. 
about Ukraine. They were not hostile, so uh, one would say that there are no particular problems that uh, that the U.S. sees in Ukraine and why uh, the U.S. does not want to talk to Ukraine. Of course, I would say two things in this respect. Of course, first of all, there is the usual mantra, and rightly so, about uh, anti-corruption and about reforms. And also, maybe Biden is trying to distance himself a bit from the Ukrainian question, given how much it has been Ukraine has been present in a notorious way, unfortunately, in the U.S. domestic politics for, I think, a good five years. In the previous elections, in these elections, in between when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations and so on and so forth. But it's not that U.S. is not uh, does not want to talk to Ukraine, no. It's the, 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 the links are quite present and there was a recent very interesting letter prepared by Kyiv Security Forum with Ukrainian diplomats, United States diplomats, former diplomats. Very positive one, etc. There was a phone talk between Ukrainian foreign minister and um, US state secretary but this personal connection would be would be very good and the rumors are that yes that uh, Biden is pressing Zelensky to to be much more radical in anti-corruption moves and maybe we can explain all this you know expansion of sanctions and very uh, active activity uh, of RNBO the National Security and Defense Council with this link another issue is uh, Iran. Let's remember that uh, Iran has shut down uh, a year ago, right? Yes, it was on 8th January 2020. Yes, uh, over a year ago shot down a Ukrainian passenger plane and there was another tragedy of many uh, human uh, human lives. So you, Iran issued a report and Ukraine was dissatisfied with it. Why? Yes, indeed. That uh, I think about a week or two ago there was the final report on the downing on the Iranian side and uh, yes, Ukraine has been dissatisfied with it because according to the statement made by Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, this report shows that the investigation had not been thorough, it had been uh, breaching uh, the international regulations, the international standards of similar uh, investigations, and that uh, it seems, it appears from the report that its aim had not been to establish truth, but rather to to show that uh, Iran is not that bad, Iran is not guilty, this just has been a, a mistake uh, of an air missile system operator who shut down unintentionally Ukrainian plane. However, this should be this report should be placed in a in a broader context because there have also been deliberations about the tapes that have been made public uh, recently on which allegedly the foreign minister of Iran is talking about the fact uh, that uh, the world would ne- will never is discussing the fact that the world will never be it will never learn the truth about what happened and these tapes they demonstrate uh, that there is a certain they prove that there is a certain angle that Iran had been interesting in putting into this report and this is how it appears to be. And, of course, uh, there is also the position of other states uh, whose nationals uh, were killed in this in this plane crash. Canada is primarily active in this respect, and they also uh, consider the conclusions of the, out- the findings of the report inconclusive. So, the question here, however, however, is there is no understanding what leverage Ukraine has left. There is a report, and what else? You know, international courts, and even Dmitry Kuleba in his statement I referred to earlier, uh, he said that we, together with international partners of Ukraine, are going to find ways to hold Iran responsible. So he did not even put any specific ideas, uh, saying that they're uh, implying that there may be a lack thereof at the time being. It's good that there is uh, the decisive 
honest to look into this thing and to continue doing so. However, how exactly that will be done is still a pending question. Well, and there is a certain uh, parallel, of course, with the downing of MH17 in the Donbass, but we see how much time it takes, and there is a court in the Netherlands who is uh, analyzing this. Let's turn to another domestic, let's come back to Ukraine to and, uh, and try to analyze two issues in the domestic politics. The first is the big protests that are happening uh, around the the verdicts against a Odessa activist, uh, Mr. Sternenko, who is... Uh, basically accused of uh, killing and kidnapping people. But there is a big, I would say, patriotic community in Ukraine who is considering that it is a political attack. And there were protests last week, I think it was a week ago, on the 20th of March. Not the first protest, there were other protests before that, but these protests on 20th of March were quite violent, symbolically violent, because uh, they were um, before in, in the front of the office of the president and uh, the walls and the doors of the office of the president were quite artistically, I would say, or anarchically painted, right? In, in a way that you, you, can, you can use the word vandalized, you can, you can use the word avant-garde painting, whatever else. But they become more, more aggressive. And um, it's important that how we we, 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 we can estimate the situation, this protest, because remember I talked about the, the drifting of Zelensky to this probably kind of he, he's trying to solidify the, his centrist positions in Ukraine and he's trying to show all those patriotic forces uh, as you know, hooligans, far rights, etc. He's there were even these political remarks that it is Poroshenko who is behind, etc., etc. So from the political, I'm not I'm not ju- judging the the Mr. Sternenko, who is this figure. It's quite a ambiguous figure, I would say. And there are pros and con- contras uh, with regard to this uh, this personality, but it is. It, it also launching another problem because there were several people who were detained during the protests, including, for example, one publisher who uh, was uh, a veteran, uh, Mr. Sort, and uh, some other people. So there is kind of a, a concern in the Ukrainian, I would say, cultural community that this is another creeping attack on, you know, people who are even from the cultural field or who who are from the artistic field, who are criticizing the current administration. And another topic uh, uh, I would like to discuss is uh, Ukraine finally wants to fight against disinformation institutionally. And this is probably our last topic, but it's quite a paradox, that <laughs> a probably typical Ukrainian situation. So if it wants to establish an institution of fighting disinformation, it establishes not one, but several ones. We have a um, news uh, that the institution will be set up within the limits of RNBO, National Security and Defense Council, but at the same time within the limits, another institution within the limits of Ukrainian uh, Ministry uh, for Culture and Information Policy. And this center will be headed by Lyubov Tsiburska, who is a well-known Ukrainian NGO activist, and she worked for many years in this field, in the information field. But my fear is that this, you know, these two institutions from different institutions, and there are rumors that uh, the RNBO institution will be closely linked to the office of the president, they can be, you know, competing, but not in a good way. And they can be used and abused in a political way. So it is a good sign that Ukraine is 
establishing these institutions in this field because there was lots of talk and we have been talking about the need of it for, for quite a long time. But let's see how it will work. Maxim, what do you think? Well, first of all, I agree that uh, I wonder why it took Ukraine so long to uh, to establish these kind of institutions. However, on the flip side, I am um, happy to see how consistent Ukraine in um, nowadays, I mean, in all this uh, fighting against Corruption, disinformation, you know, we have been talking about sanctions, RNBO sanctions, a good share of which uh, touched upon Russian interests. And previously there had been sanctions uh, uh, against the pro-Russian channels. And a couple of days ago there have been sanctions about uh, against Russian information resources. And now we have disinformation, uh, disinformation establishments. So I like how consistent it looks, at least for the time being. Of course, there is a, a possibility of their competing not in a good way, as you said. I hope that this subordination that exist between them because one is near the, is within the premises of the RNBO and the second one is within the structure of the Ministry of Culture and Information Policy. So maybe that will help because this way they are not the two institutions of the same level that compete from the same level. They are, you know, there are differences to their status. So maybe this will help. However, of course, Ukrainian political politicum has, has a notorious record of making everything possible in that regard. So yes. I'm not sure they, they are now understand what is the what is the difference between what is the difference in the mandates because that's a typical Ukrainian also story maybe not only in Ukraine uh, the different agencies state agencies start competing for a certain field and uh, from a certain moment they're starting waging a war against each other there is uh, one important thing is to make these institutions really independent really expert-based, really independent from political influences, because you can imagine how you can use and abuse the an institution which is fighting against disinformation. You can just say, you are saying that Mr. X spreading disinformation, and that's it, you know. Because what is happening with the, on the institutional level, and we will finish on this point, maybe a little bit sad point, um, in the cultural field, we see a big public attack on the Ukrainian Cultural Foundation, which finally led to the to the fact that the director general of Ukrainian Cultural Foundation Yulia Fedev has has denied, has re- rejected uh, the possibility to uh, participate in a competition for the director. And with Yulia Fedev, we have lots of understanding, l- lots of action, uh, which she did and uh, her team did to make uh, a Ukrainian public institution, state institution, a really an independent institution with, with transparency, with, uh, with, with clear procedures, with expert-based assessment, etc., etc. Now we, we see an encroaching, an attempt to kind of, uh, you know, take over the good, efficient public state or state institutions by some vested interests. I would say in this field, it is about concert industries, you know, pop culture, which is not really something that pop culture, commercial pop culture should be seeking state funding for, for its uh, activities. I don't, I don't Uh, think this this should be the case but uh, the same can happen with uh, anti-disinformation institutions that's uh, that's my fear because this culture of creating independent state institutions is only now being born in Ukraine and it is very sad that uh, there are lots of forces who are trying to kill this culture from the very beginning but let's hope everything will be fine of course we are, we are hoping uh, as human beings uh, this was explaining ukraine podcast by ukraineworld.org 
we have launched a tradition of a monthly podcast in which we try to understand what what were the key events and trends in Ukraine during one month. Today we were talking about March 2021. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can uh, read our articles, videos, video explainers, video reports, and of course listen to our podcasts. Uh, I had the pleasure to talk with Maxim Panchenko, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. And my name is Volodymyr Yermolnko, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Stay with us. Thank you.